the fact that somebody said, no, if we really want this program to be a success, we're actually going to have specifically trained people who will go to doctors' offices and hold their hands. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't even imagine how much insight that took. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Welcome to Mastering Medicare. We are so excited about today's episode. This is the podcast about demystifying Medicare, and we have an amazing guest today. Today's guest is Dr. Howard Haft, and he comes to us from the Maryland Department of Health, the Maryland Primary Care Program, MDPCP, and we are really excited to introduce him and to understand a little bit about what is going on in the world outside of sort of fee-for-service Medicare and possibly looking into more value-based and more interesting ways of getting paid as a provider. I think it's not something that everybody knows about. And so let me get a chance to introduce Dr. Haft to everybody. Dr. Haft is the executive director at the Maryland Primary Care Program. And he has an unbelievable history. He has served as the Deputy Secretary for Public Health and as the Acting Executive Director for the Maryland Health Benefit Exchange and has had, I just learned, many interesting business experiences as well. And we are so happy to have you in the studio today, Dr. Haft. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. So one of the things I wanted to make sure we get through is what is the Maryland Primary Care Program? And Nobody listening probably knows. That's That's been my theory, is that there's probably about 350 people out there that might know, but I'm going to guess not. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Maryland Primary Care Program is? I'd certainly be happy to. And first, I'm sad that so few people know about it because we've been trying very hard to let people know about it. It's not been a secret at all. In fact, we have more than 2,000 primary care physicians and, and nearly 500 practices in Maryland in the program. And at least they should know about it. So, but but let me just tell you a little bit about what the Maryland Primary Care Program is, and it's a it's one of the elements of a contract that the state entered into with the federal government called the Total Cost of Care Contract. The governor signed that contract in July of 2018, and it became effective in January 1st of 2019. And it's a contract that effectively changes the way we deliver and pay for health care in the state of Maryland, because we recognize that. Not only in Maryland, but nationally, there's a there's some significant issues in healthcare. Uh, high costs, unsustainably high costs, that filter down to to people every day, make it difficult for them to get all the care that they need because they simply can't afford it. Their insurance premiums are too high, and their copays are too high, and their deductibles are too high. And we see that you know bankruptcies occurring related to healthcare are now on the upswing again, and the trend has not been in a positive direction. So. We know the costs are high, and we also know that the quality and outcomes are not as good as they should be uh, in this country for as much as we pay for health care. So we're paying nearly twice as much as every other economically developed country on a per capita basis for health care. We pay more than $10,000 per person. That's every man, woman, and child in the country every year. That accounts to more than $3.5 trillion every year in this country. That's a lot of money. And for that, all of that money... We find that our life expectancy, one thing that we really would hope would be increasing over time, is actually decreasing year over year for the last several years. And in other countries that spend far less, it's increasing. 
So we have a problem, and, one of the, and we wanted to address it in Maryland. And, and, and we, the, one of the ways that we're addressing it, one of many ways that we're addressing it is through this change in the way we deliver healthcare and making hospitals more efficient and creating a strong primary care infrastructure. Knowing that the, the stronger the prevention and primary care infrastructure, the more likely we'll be able to avoid unnecessary expenses and high-end expenses and, and really emphasize prevention and the management and prevention of chronic diseases. And, and that's, that, we hope, is the path forward. So that's what the program is about. It's, part, it's one of the pieces of this broader total cost of care contract that we're in for the next decade. So it is, thank you so much. That was very actually helpful because I think some of the data pieces people don't really think about. $3.5 trillion, you said? It's a trillion with a that's T. That's a T yes. with a trillion with a T. Yeah. It's a lot. Yes. That's a lot of money. The question really that I have is, why is Maryland so unique and so different that they're going to be implementing this? I mean, are, do these programs exist in other states, or are we kind of a special state? Amy, that's a wonderful question. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try and answer it as succinctly as I can. Yeah. So the, the answer is that, in short, is that the problem exists in all the states and in every state in the country. We're, we're not alone in terms of the, the challenges that we face. Medicare, and particularly the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, has been, since the advent of the Affordable Care Act, experimenting or, or testing a variety of different models to see which of these models might be effective in, in addressing these two issues that I mentioned, cost and quality. Maryland came into this in a, in a unique way, in that Maryland, for 40 years before this, had been what was called an all-payer state in regard to hospital payments, which simply stated means that every hospital got paid the same by every payer. So Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payers all paid the same for any individual service. Now, every hospital got a different payment. So a large... It was based, and it was based on volume at that point. It was based, So the payments were volume-based payments, but the, the structure for the payments was based on what the, how much uncompensated care the hospital had or what the cost to have staffing and a whole host of other things, how much gr- graduate medical education they did. So large places like uh, university centers like Hopkins University of Maryland might get more for a particular service like an appendectomy, and a small community hospital might get less, but all the payers paid the same amount for that hospital, including Medicare and Medicaid. But over years, over decades... Medicaid in other states paid less and less for proportionately than commercial payers did. But in Maryland, they were fair payers until, oh, I would say eight or 10 years ago when Medicare noted that they were paying, because they were fair payers, they were paying, in Maryland, they were paying hospitals more than they were paying any other place. Maybe not, maybe they, we were number one or number two highest in the country in terms of Medicare payments to hospitals. And they said, we'd like to do something different. And that gave us the opportunity, both out of, out of a challenge, to say, yes, we can do something different. We can really lead, the, ch- lead the, the charge in really designing a much more thoughtful and innovative way forward for hospital and, and ambulatory payments. And let's design a whole new system. And the first thing that they did is said, let's take all the hospitals, instead of putting them on a volume basis, which they were on before, so the more you did the more you got paid, even though the rates were set, but it was still do more, get paid more, and put change the hospitals to global budgets, which meant this is your budget, this is all you get for the year. It's like a capitation. So there's no more incentive to do more. 
you're not incentivized to see to have more volume. You're only incentivized to do a good job within that budget, which usually brings about efficiencies rather than increases in volumes. So it, it really capped the amount that we're spending for hospitals. But we knew, we knew clearly that we couldn't sustain that cap if the front doors of hospitals were open and we didn't do anything to, to effectively improve the health of the population. Uh, because eventually we're going to be staring down the barrel, and we are right now, of, of the baby boomers getting to the age where chronic diseases are going to really overwhelm the, the healthcare system, be a tsunami of, of new needs. And if you've capped the amount of income that a hospital has without doing anything to take care of the tsunami that's coming at like them. Like as an outpatient. It would overwhelm them. So we said we, we really need to be effective in our primary care strategies. So we, we made a voluntary program called, as part of this total cost of care called the Maryland Primary Care Program. And, and in, a, in an absolutely astounding way, our primary care providers across the state responded and said, yes, we want to be part of that movement to provide better care and, and address these issues. And we'll, we're happy to accept the program and the investments that are going to be made, and we'll do things that we were not capable of doing before because we were strained because of lack of resources or, or, or lack of income to do these things. Yeah. So, Dr. Haft, how does, how does the Maryland Primary Care Program actually work? Like, if you were to pitch a new primary care doctor on the ins and outs or the high-level overview of what this is, like, and you only had a few minutes, how would you describe that? Yeah, I, I describe it as saying you know we know for a long we've known for a long time that that primary care is the is the entry place for most people for their health care as it should be. But over the over the last few decades, there's been a variety of other things that have happened to fragment primary care. There's a you know the rise of urgent cares. There's commercial clinics like the walk-in clinics and pharmacies and other things that have kind of fragmented care. And 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 primary care providers have been. Uh, put upon to because there's smaller numbers of uh, primary care providers and larger demand to see more and more patients, sure. and and then gives them shorter and shorter time to see those patients. Um, and they've been unable to attend to a lot of the things that are really critical for for the health of the people that they serve. <clears throat> things like the behavioral health needs of individuals. You know, we've we we haven't had enough time in the day previously to address depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and other things because they're more complicated. And you can't take care of that in a five or 10-minute opportunity right. uh, to see a patient. Or address their social needs, things like uh, people having food insecurity or housing insecurity or not having transportation or income sufficient to get their medications. Those are all complicated things. So what we said to primary care doctors, and he hears the story, is that we want, to, we want to provide you with more income to build the infrastructure, to add more staff, to be able to expand your access to patients in innovative ways and allow you to do a better job. And we're willing to make investments to allow you to do that. And more than that, we're willing to provide, as a state, support to help you do that with care transformation organizations and coaches like we have here, Tammy Liu. Hi, Tammy. <laughs> and, and, and technology and and, and, and give you data that's actionable data at your fingertips to make it really easy to identify what the needs of patients are um, because we really want to help primary care. We really want to help you. 
And that was the story that we told. It was simple as that. We recognize that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. We think that primary care is a big part of the solution, and we want to make investments, and we want to help primary care get stronger and lead the way in the state. And, and, and two-thirds of the primary care doctors, even in the first two years of, of our open enrollment, said, yes, we want to be in this. So that's very high participation. So you're telling me that two-thirds of the primary care doctors in the state of Maryland are participating in this program. Yes. So let's introduce okay. Tammy. Yeah, and then absolutely. I want to look underneath the hood a little uh, bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, still, I understand the, the motivations behind this, but I still don't fully understand the program. So if you want to introduce. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have in the studio also an amazing amazing practice coach, Tammy Liu, who has been with me for the past many, many months um, being the practice coach for the practice that I am currently in. And Tammy, say hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Begrudgingly, (laughs) I'm on on a podcast. (laughs) So anyways, Tammy has, first of all, an amazing background. She has a public health background and has worked a lot in the state in different organizations prior to coming to Merit the state of Maryland primary care program. She understands very broadly how sort of the Medicare system works and is very adept at going into practices and helping to identify sort of what is the practice supposed to do to help be better at fulfilling some of the goals that Dr. Haft just spoke about, spoke about, correct? Is that pretty much it? In a nutshell, yes. (laughs) In a nutshell, yes. But at a very granular level as well, correct? Yes. So when you go to a practice for the very first time and you meet with them, you have a lot of data about them, I'm going to guess, right? You know a lot about that practice. You'll know. Wait, uh, can we get learn a little bit more about Tammy? I'm curious. Okay. Who do you work for? Like who? Yeah, all right, Tammy, who high, do you work for? Oh, yeah, yeah. let's go. Who is Come sending on. you out to the practices? Yeah. Who? So I work for the State Department of Health. Okay. <clears throat> under the Maryland Primary Care Program. So I work um, under Dr. Half's team. And so we are part of the state program management office. So we are comprised of a lot of passionate people who work for the state, who support the program. So I'm technically a state employee. Yep. Got it. And then you are sent out in order to basically evangelize this program and help doctors get onboarded? Well, no, I actually work with program participants. So practices that have already been accepted and signed participation been, agreements. Post-evangelization. Okay. Post-evangelization. <laughs> They're already okay. converted All by right. the time they get to me. <laughs> so more of an onboarding or more of a support role or? A little bit of both. Okay. So I offer technical hands-on assistance. There's some program requirements in terms of reporting to CMMI. There's also some quality measures that we ask the practices to look at, like ECQMs like diabetes and hypertension and some substance use for for 2019 program year. So I help with figuring out how can practices access this data? What are the gaps uh, for practices? Can they identify these patients? Is there assistance and resources like care management, community-based resources to be able to refer these patients out to get better care to ultimately get better outcomes for the entire practice. It's sort of like recognizing where your issues are. You can't like help fix anything until you've identified where the the gaps are. And so you're using sort of this this map, this blueprint that MDPCP has given to you to some degree, bringing that out to the practices and then helping them to sort of figure out where they are on that blueprint. Correct. So the program has five care transformation requirements. It's it's 
basically into five different buckets of how to really improve primary care. It's um, access, care management. There's also looking at your data and really reviewing it with your practices and having people onboarded in really just understanding the spirit of primary care improvement. So it doesn't start just, you know, with the providers. It starts with the front desk staff. It starts with patient engagement. It starts with pa- patient family advisory councils. So there's a lot of different aspects. And we're really taking a holistic view in terms of how are we improving primary care at every staff level in the program. So for me, as a practice coach, I'm external to the practice. So when I enter, I give a better view of this is what it looks like from an outsider here are some gaps that I'm seeing. Let's look at figuring out what we can do to try to address those gaps. But fundamentally, what is the program? Is this an alternative payment model? Is this something that attaches onto the fee-for-service model, or does it replace it? Like, what are we talking about here? So let, let me give you a, just a, a high-level okay. uh, version of that. So it, it is an, an advanced alternative payment model okay. um, in the parlance of Medicare, uh, which means that the practices that participate in this program receive certain financial benefits from Medicare, five percent bonus, and other kinds of things that 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 they would not get if they were not in this kind of program. Sure. But at the heart of it, it really is a it is both an investment in primary care and a value based program. So the program has two tracks and um, kind of a starter track we call track one. Okay. And then the mature track, which is called track two. So all practices need to get to track two. They need to get to the mature level within a prescribed period of time. So there's no practices that that stay in the I'm not quitely, not quite completely advanced care. Sure. And advanced primary care has the five uh, areas that Tammy spoke about: expanded access, risk risk stratified care management. So every practice needs to have a care manager and do risk stratification, expansion, comprehensiveness of care, so the practices need to address social determinants of health. They need to integrate behavioral right. health in a, in a methodical, evidence-based way. They need to do patient family advisory councils, and they need to use the, all the advanced HIT tools to do continuous quality improvement and other things. So if they're not able in the prescribed period of time to do that, then they're excluded from the program. If they are then they move to a partial capitation, a value-based payment system. And, and is there both upside and downside risk? There's, there's, there's a bit of downside risk, and it's the kind of downside risk that we call nominal risk that occurs in patient-centered medical homes. And the risk is really against their performance bonuses. So there's a piece of the, of the, of the investments we make called care management fees that are not at risk in the program. And they're really designed to build infrastructure to bring on care managers, okay. to, to allow practices to have the best technology, to do PFACs, and all those other things that practices can't do on primary care, on, on the usual primary care payments. And then there's a piece that is the performance bonus, which is linked to their ability to manage diabetes and hypertension, to, to a, appropriately manage the utilization of emergency departments and hospitals, and to provide good patient satisfaction measured by an external survey. So they they get that as an upfront payment, and then depending on how they do, they they have to revert some of that. So if they do really well, they hold on to the whole performance bonus, but if they, if they don't do well in gradations, they have to pay that back to the federal government. Wait, there's an upfront payment? Yeah, upfront. so basically at the very, so when you, let me just, sure. as, a, as a 
experienced yeah. participant at the beginning of the the year, you get a chunk of cash that's like, here's your money for the year that's this at is, risk. This is your at-risk money for the year. Wait, wait. Is this above and beyond what you would have earned in the so, fee-for-service model, so or is this, this a portion I'm gonna, of that? I'm actually going to do a, a, an Alex summary okay. right now. So basically, this is a program that is for Medicare patients. Only. Only. Okay. Okay, so the, they're... Like if I had a practice that had well, let me oh, Doctor House going to correct me. I, I have to it. jump in there. Jump okay. in, jump in. So the program was always designed to be a multi-payer program. The first year of the program was had Medicare only. Okay, so the that sec- was what I know about. The, the second, <laughs> so and and we opened up applications for the second year and beyond for commercial payers and for Medicaid and others and. And beginning in January of this year, beginning now, oh, wow. we have a large commercial payer. Care First has joined the Who program. Who knew? Yeah. So, there you so go. it is a multi-payer Welcome program. Welcome, Care First. Yeah. Welcome. So, so it is. It, they they have a different. It's it's a, it's another. It's an aligned payment system. It's not right. identical, but they are part of the Maryland Primary Care Program. So, but just so that I totally understand, if Care First is now participating, that means for all primary care patients. That's not right. Just Medicare. So now we're looking at you know young and middle aged. Correct. Folks Correct. are all part of the Maryland Primary Care Program. Correct. From... So hold on. Let me make sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so I, Alex has got a question. I have oh. so many questions. <laughs> oh, like, no, okay. I'm coming I'm in so this excited. as a blank slate, uh, I like which it. I think actually helps the audience. No, it does because, because he comes yeah. in as like the, he's like the straight man. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm so that yeah. grumpy guy in the Muppets <laughs> in the, in the balcony. <laughs> he, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oscar, Oscar the Grouch. No, no, no. <laughs> the two guys that sit up oh, there in the Muppets and watch and comment. So if I decide to participate in this program as a primary care doctor, um, it, do I get to pick and choose which of my Medicare and or Care First patients or all of my Medicare and Care First is yay or nay? All of them have to participate or not? So the, the from the patient's perspective, they all participate. Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries, Care First patients will participate. They all have an, in, in respecting patients' ability to maintain confidentiality and privacy, they all have an opportunity to opt out of data sharing and those kinds of okay. things. But as far as the practice goes, they're all participants. So, And in fact, I will tell you this, as far as the practice goes for our program, for the Maryland Primary Care Program, it is absolutely agnostic as to payers, which means that the transformation that occurs, the quality measures, all of the interventions are done for all patients. Only medic, At this point, only Medicare, Medi- Medicare, Care First, and a, and a small portion of Medicaid are actually financial contributors, but... But the but the practice transformation is agnostic to payers. Oh, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. The practice is expected to make these changes, these addition, or provide these additional services to all of their patients. Yes, regardless of whether that patient's payer is participating in this program. Yes, yet. Exactly. Oh. exactly. And if they're not doing that, if they're only like they go to MDPCP jail, <laughs> they go to jail. <laughs> MDPCP jail. Got it. We don't call it, we don't call okay. it jail. We call it purgatory. Purgatory. Okay. Yes. So what is what are we Tammy talking about? Tammy will no about? longer come <laughs> what to our practice. You know, there's all these different ways now where doctors are incentivized by quality standards and yes. can earn a little bit more money or potentially lose some. So what are we talking about? What is the maximum? Are we talking about like a five percent bump that they could earn? And and what is the actual potential loss if they participate but don't do a good job? Yeah, so so the payments, the care management fees, are paid in a risk stratified way. So we look at at the basically the health of all of the attributed beneficiaries, and payments are 
graded from $6 per beneficiary per month up to $100 per beneficiary per month. And $100 is the the 10% high, the sickest patients, okay. plus anyone who has a behavioral health diagnosis or dementia. But that's so, for track two, correct? Or is that track one? Do- so $100 is for... Yeah, it's, it's $6 to $50 in track one, and it's yeah. $9 to $100 in, in track, track two. two. Got it. Oh, but it's the, a monthly payment? It's a yes, pay, it, it is. It's a paid in advance. Okay. Paid in advance on a quarterly basis, but it's a per beneficiary per month. To just as the top, so so you understand the, the magnitude. Yeah. This we know from from our data that the average practice in Maryland has 4.5 providers. Obviously, no practice sure, is sure. actually the average. But if you wanted to use a demographic for <clears throat> for the made up average sure. practice, oh, I love this. Yeah, this it's a, the investment would be one hundred sixty thousand dollars for the practice on the average. But wait, by wait, investment but, but, but you, by, mean, you mean you mean you're the, giving you would be giving the practice the, on average. The practice would have one hundred sixty thousand dollars of new cash inflow from okay. care management fees for four point five doctors. For, yes, so, okay. so around it's actually you know maybe one hundred sixty six thousand, but it's okay. around yeah. forty thousand dollars or so per doctor per year. Okay, plus whatever the performance bonus is, and the performance bonuses are again they're risk they're not risk stratified, but they're either on track one it's two dollars and fifty cents per beneficiary per month but it's paid in advance for a year, and track two, it's $4. So it's a relatively smaller amount, but that's the part that's at risk. So you would have, you know, you could you could say that the, the, the infrastructure investment winds up being about this $40,000 per provider. If you wanted to look at it as a, as a proportion to what providers usually generate in terms of revenue, yeah. it looks like, you know, most Primary care providers generate somewhere around four hundred thousand dollars, and that's a that's a guess. It's probably, but it's probably a pretty good, reasonable guess. Yeah. In overall gross revenue, gross revenue. So yeah. it would be about a ten percent increase in their revenue. But it's not not designed to go to them to go back in a sure. paycheck. It's, these are inf, you know largely infrastructure payments. Right. Okay. So 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 the, and the potential bonus is about it sounds like twenty five to almost fifty dollars a year per patient. Right, two right. and a month. Correct. No, no two per and a half to four okay. per month, oh, per yeah. which month. comes out to yeah. about twenty-five to fifty bucks a year right. per patient. Got right. it. Right, and, and if the typical you know primary care provider would have two hundred, sure. you know, two hundred Medicare beneficiaries, it would be about that ten thousand dollar range. And so, when we say there's money at risk, it's really the bonus that's at risk. There's yes. no real doubt. They're they're not going to go below. They're not the, the Medicare. Fee the only way rates. that they could actually lose is if it costs them a lot of money to provide these services, more so than they're getting in that check, basically. And that, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and from what we, what we understand in speaking to our practices now, that's, that's about right. They're, they're not making any money on that part. You know, and sure. many of them say, well, we actually have, you know, by the time we hire a care manager and do all these other things, this helps, but it doesn't, it doesn't pay for all of that. Um, we also have just just to complicate things yeah. a little more, but to be fully di- full disclosure, we we spawned a new piece of the healthcare delivery system in the state as part of this program called care transformation organizations. So those uh, those are organizations that joined voluntarily. They needed to be vetted by us and by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. They many of them looked like what ACOs were, accountable mm-hmm. care organizations, or clinically integrated networks that already existed. And some were, you know, new to the, new to the state from other areas, and some were made from whole cloth right here. But what they were, were, were designed to be 
organizations that could help groups of practices and through economies of scale be able to hire care managers and community health workers and LCSWs and pharmacists and others who are needed for the program, but an individual practice might not be able to hire like one-tenth of a pharmacist or one-half of an LCSW. So they, they, they aggregate the employment piece and provide other resources, and on a voluntary basis, the practices share some of these care management fees with them. Totally voluntary that they would say, a small or medium-sized practice would say, you know, to meet all these needs, it's really going to be hard for me to get to hire all these people. But I don't, you know, I, and I don't need somebody. I don't need an LCSW to do behavioral health counseling every day, sure. eight hours a day. I mean, I can't just have them sitting around. So I'll contract with this care transformation organization and give them some of my care management fees, and they'll be able to give me a portion of a person on a rotating basis. And that's been very popular. 75% of our practices have chosen to, in one way, shape, or form, to to contract with care transformation organizations. So how do, you know, if I were if I were a primary care doctor hearing this, the big my big concern would be, what is the administrative bureaucratic burden on me in order to participate in this program? Yeah. So how do practices report their data? Is it claims-based or is there actual audit of charts or how does that happen? So practices report, so beginning this year, they'll report on a biannual basis about their care transformation requirements. So they'll, they'll fill out a form that's an online form that twice a year that says, Yes, I've integrated behavioral health. Um, yes, I've expanded my access or haven't. Yes, we do care management. Yes, we risk stratify our patients. Those kinds of things on, a, on an online portal. So they do that now twice a year. Once a year, <clears throat> they report quality data. And that's done. We've, we've, we've worked um, extensively with our state health information exchange, CRISP. Mm-hmm. And CRISP has created a tool that allows the practices to simply upload through CRISP, through a portal that they, ha- that they have on CRISP, their quality measures. Twice a year, they submit rosters to a contractor to do the CAP surveys, which is a survey of patient satisfaction. And that's, that's really the extent of the, of the reporting requirements. Now, but to your very good question about administrative burdens, the, we work with the federal government, obviously, with CMMI on this program, and, and it will come as no shock to any of the listeners that the federal government carries with it a lot of administrative and reporting requirements. Right. And, and so we've been working together with our very, <clears throat> our very cooperative partners at CMMI who co-manage the program with us to progressively reduce the administrative burden. There's still work to be done there. Right. But I think that's one, you know, in this, in this day and age, adding more administrative burden to the to any provider's daily fare comes close to being the straw that breaks the camel's Absolutely. back. Absolutely. So we, we make every effort to reduce those burdens and, and make every effort to make their work simpler by increasing staff and, and improving workflows and, and providing technical assistance to do all of those things. So there's a self-attestation portion, yes. you said, and then there's this reporting of the quality data. Yes. So is the reporting of the quality data similar to HEDIS measures, like percent of hypertensive patients who are like taking a, a blood pressure medicine, you know, a certain number of months during the year type thing? And, and how are doctors actually 
calculating those things, whatever yeah. those measures are, is that built into some EMRs or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, built into all, so all, all the practices are required to have certified electronic health records um, using the 2015 standards, which okay. is now five years old. So yep. it doesn't sound like it's that current, but it is. That's the best available right now. And all of those electronic health records are capable to deliver what are called eCQMs, electronic clinical quality measures, through other, you know, I'll give you an, an, another acronym, through QRDAs. Nobody okay. cares about all those acronyms. <laughs> Can you or, say, what do you know what QRDA stands for? Just so I have know. not an idea. Yeah. Love that. I love it. There's so many acronyms. Not even Dr. Half knows them all. <laughs> yeah, so... I, so I was uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, Monday, I was at a making the rounds for very sophisticated foundations in New York City, looking for uh, folks who were interested in working with us in the program. And I was guilty of, <clears throat> of using what I thought were fairly common acronyms. And the president of one of those very... His head exploded, yeah. <laughs> yeah her, her head, she <laughs> her head said, exploded. excuse me, Dr. Haft. Could you please stop using those acronyms because we don't really understand them. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her for saying that. Listen, we have no idea. You just spoke in all letters and yeah. we have no clue. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're 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 absolutely all guilty of that. So so but the to answer your question yeah. more more succinctly, the practice is it's an automated system. It comes right out of the electronic health records and the doctors don't have to do that. It's you it's always the staff who just say, you know, they query the electronic record with the portal open and they upload the data. And it's a once-a-year once uh, event. In fact, it's happening as we speak. I'm curious, what are the number one and two objections that you hear when you're trying to get primary care doctors on board? I think it's um, one of the biggest challenges is uh, the providers think, oh, it's another program. It's something to have to do. What, more what work. more work do I have to do? Yeah. I'm already, mm-hmm. you know have a packed burdened. I am sufficiently burdened. Exactly. Yes. And that's something else that I need to learn to do. So I think the benefit of having hands-on um, technical assistance with coaches coming to visit to meet with either its providers or practice administration or even just staff is to explain the program. And it's very simple compared to other programs that we've seen. So it's kind of nice. I, I can definitely break that down into like a two-minute TED Talk as to what is the program like and how is this going to affect your job? So basically it's, we want to be able to provide better access and better care. So what does this look like for you as a provider? It's, we're going to try to add more staffing, like care managers to be able to help you out within your visit. So you might have like a 10 minute visit with your patient and they come up with a smattering of social issues or, you know, a bunch of other issues, or maybe their diabetes hasn't been in control and you can't have this weekly visit with them for 10 minutes just to better change some behaviors for them to better manage their diabetes. This is where we could come in and say, this is where a care management referral would be appropriate. And, you know, I think one of those things is we need to build it for the providers and show them that these care managers are here to help you and help supplement your reach and your ability to provide better patient care. So some of it is also the second part is culture change. So being able to talk about this change of culture that it doesn't have to sit all on your shoulders. We're a huge team and we can work together like multi multidisciplinary teams of healthcare staff to be able to help out all of our patients in the practice. You know, the fact that Tammy 
your role even exists. It's kind of amazing. It blows it's my amazing. mind. It's amazing. It is actually I, amazing. I have never Truly. seen a, a government bureaucracy throw out, you know, a massive new program and say, listen, we're actually going to help you. We're going to give you live human beings who will visit your practice, be accessible by phone, who will be basically problem solvers for hire. Right, that you don't have the the practices don't have to pay you directly, right? I want to let you know how much her existence lowers one's blood pressure. Like the <laughs> no. the idea. So so I'm just going to give you as an example. You know, if you know that there's like a quarterly reporting deadline, and you have you know anxiety about you know whatever it is yeah. the you know how do I get onto the portal? Where in the portal do I put this information? How do I answer certain questions so that they understand what we're doing? You know that kind of thing. I think that ultimately. It's it's one of those things where I always never I never felt particularly anxious about it. I was like, oh, okay, well, Tammy will come and you know we'll sit down in front of the computer and I'll log in and I'll say, oh wait, where do I go for this? Because those are the kinds of things. And Alex, you've sat in enough rooms with me to understand that like sometimes you're like, okay, press here, press here, press here. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not all millennials. You know, we're not all sitting here, you know, completely conversant in. Uh, you know, databases or new, you know, new technology you know, challenges as they might be in a portal. I mean, just that existence in and of itself is is incredibly supportive. Yeah, well, a common theme we've had in prior interviews where we're learning about how complicated and broken much of our healthcare system is, is that there are often many new programs, resources, regulations with great intentions, but the people who implemented those didn't think about how do we actually make this easy for the end user to implement, Yeah, right? the user and experience, you, yeah, the last and it, mile. And if you don't make it easy for people to implement, it's not going to happen. It. It's not going to work. Never gonna so, so, Dr. Half, I am fascinated by who thought that we need to make this easy for doctors because nobody ever even – nobody thinks about that usually. And, like, what were you part of that conversation? How did that happen? So that's another great question, and I think the simple answer to that is I had been at the receiving end of these programs as a provider yeah. myself for decades. So as, a, as, as one who had been at the receiving end and had programs of various kinds and, and, and shapes and sources thrown at me from commercial and, and federal payers without, the, without resources or understanding on how to implement and sustain those yeah. programs— as we created this one, we said, change is really hard. Yes. And particularly, it's really hard when people are already fully engaged in what they're doing with not a moment to spare. And everybody is, 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 is working at the top of speed that they can do within, within the practices. So we're going to need to really lean in heavily with resources and support if we want this to be successful. And if we want the change process to occur within the time frame that, that we have to make it happen and to be successful. Because this is, you know, you'd say five to ten years, that's a long time. Five to ten years is really, it goes by at a heartbeat when yeah. you're trying to change a culture and, and change the paradigm of how we deliver care. So we did all of these things with tech, not only with Tammy and the, and the coaches, which I think are really the secret sauce to have somebody at right. your elbow, but we did the same thing with contractors. So for behavioral health integration, we hired some some world-class contractors to go to the practices and show them how to integrate behavioral health into their workflows and into their electronic health records. We hired contractors to 
show them how to optimize their electronic health records where they were struggling. The, you know, the right. electronic health records are both a, a, a blessing and a curse and maybe sure. lean more toward the curse most of the time. Oh, believe um, me. I know that <laughs> side of the story. Yeah. But, you know, we're, in a, we're kind of in an ugly interface, in, an ugly period in the development of electronic sure. health records. I'm sure they'll get better over time. Yeah, I hope. Sure. <laughs> but so we, we leaned in with those things. And then and with, with our, our colleagues at CRISP, and then uh, making they, all of the work that, that they need to do be clearly defined on a single portal. And then giving them tools that we develop with the university systems, with Hilltop uh, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore campus, to, to really refine who do you need to concentrate on this month and make that part really easy. And on and on. Just continue to layer on things that will help them. But all the time saying, here's the mantra. The mantra is doctors nurses, practitioners, PAs, you are the leaders of these teams, but this is all team-based care. You're not going to do it all on your own. You have a team, and everyone in that team should work at the, at the highest level of their license or certification, and then it makes your work much easier. You have to delegate. You're the leader. Let's develop a new paradigm for how you do things to make it easier for you and give, give things that can be appropriately given to the other people in that team those responsibilities, and they'll love it. And then we develop also to help support this this kind of program and this kind of thinking, training academies for staff that we have around the state. So we bring together 100, 200 staff people, get them together in a room for a day and teach them how to do behavioral uh, interviewing and other kinds of things. And then we also bring together the providers in separate sessions and say, here's what it is to be a leader. Here's what it is to manage change. Here's what it is to build teams. And here's, here's what we're doing in this program. So we're giving them lots and lots of love and support. Uh, and that, that's really what it takes. So it, I think for any, you know, whether it's a business that you're running or a program like this, you can't, you can't expect that people will change just because you tell them to change. Correct. You have to, give them a, you have to give them a reason to change, something that they believe in, and then you have to give them lots of support. And then celebrate. This their, just blows amen. my mind. Celebrate I mean, we're, 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 you, you injected empathy into a process that had never had that before, you know, and and that's incredible. That is just incredible. Without empathy, taking a moment to understand, you know, the end user and what they need in order to be able to implement your program or your policy, things don't work. So thank on behalf of all of the physicians <laughs> in Maryland and, and their beyond. patients and, and their beyond. patients <laughs> and and the tax purse and the taxpayers, you know, uh, concerned. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is I, this is the first time I'm, I'm actually overwhelmed with joy in learning about a program in healthcare. I, I I second that because almost everybody who has sat in this room and we've talked to over the past many months you know, they're all part of what are almost considered to be innovative programs unto themselves. You know, people do amazingly innovative things with in, within the state, within the nation. You know, under the rules of Medicare, people are able to provide all sorts of really amazing things. And the federal government, you know, sometimes just says, here, blah, this, do this. 
and they don't give enough guidance. And so people sit and spin their wheels. And how do I really do this? Am I going to get in trouble for doing it this way? Or is this the way to do it? Or And, and there's just no guidance. And, and, and this is a truly sort of you marched people, you're marching people through the system and it is, it is quite impressive. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. So you've, you've impressed Alex. So that's really all that matters. <laughs> can I, can I ask some follow-up questions? No, yeah, keep going. Okay. So keep going. I'm really curious about that process still. So was that, was the resistance to hiring coaches? Cause it costs money, right? And the easiest thing would have been to just put out a a few PDFs and say, go figure it out the the way it normally happens. Was there resistance to this idea of actually hiring and paying for coaches, number one? Number two, how many coaches are there in the state of Maryland? So, you know, there's resistance. There's always resistance from some quarters for everything that you do. I think there's, you know, we're not living in a, you know, in a, in a, in a world that everyone agrees to, (laughs) to anything, but, but there was relatively little resistance to the concept Okay. Uh, I think as we as we explain the the need and and also the sense of urgency for the change process, that my colleagues at the state were very willing to say, sure, we can we can provide funding for that. So we've we've been, we've enjoyed uh, broad support from the secretary and from the governor to do exactly these things. So so I would say you know the weak weak resistance is always resistance sure. in terms okay. of you know spending any. Any money, unless it's you know, there's clearly a return on that investment, whether it's taxpayer dollars or others. So we and we do leverage federal funds for this. So it's not this is not coming directly out of the taxpayer's pocket, sure. and that's important. It's certainly important sure. to the governor. But you know, I I I think that it it's you know it was one of those you know situations as as it developed, we created a plan for how we would support the program even as we created the program and said that we can't, you know, we, mm-hmm. we need to have adequate support <clears throat> and we need to have you know, these, these basic elements of, of having a mission that people can believe in. Because yeah. if you don't have a mission that doctors or anyone can believe in, they may participate for the, for the money, but they won't be sustained in, the, in, their, in their desire yeah. to be successful. Well, I'm and just astounded the, to the level of help that you guys implemented. Like, I, I would have guessed that if I were a government bureaucrat and I heard you need help, I would have said, okay, well, we'll put a hotline number and you can call and get mm-hmm. some help. But the fact that somebody said, no, if we really want this program to be a success, we're actually going to have specifically trained people who will go to doctors' offices and hold their hands, mm-hmm. that took I, I, I can't even imagine how much insight th- uh, that took. Well, let, let me let me add to that a little bit. Dr. Huff, can you speak a little bit to some of the successes? Because I think that if yeah. I think that maybe if you can sort of articulate that there has been success, it almost supports itself. So it sounds right. like from other discussions you and I have had, this mm-hmm. has been pretty successful in, in in doing something. Could you tell us about some of the successes of the program? I, I, th- I can. So so the I think the biggest success was the enthusiasm that we had amongst our, our primary care providers in the state to who doesn't uh, want money to, right to participate so <laughs> so no and i think that you're exactly right so some of it is some of it is that but yeah. you know people could take the money and not do anything right um, but we've seen that even in the first year more than 90% of the practices fully implemented behavioral health integrated behavioral health into their practices they didn't really need to do that Kind of a three-year run-up to do that. They right. didn't need to do that right away, yeah. but they were. You were enthused. reducing some friction that they obviously that was making yeah. them unhappy with maybe what they were doing. You know, they were yeah. some satisfaction there. They've expanded access to, and this is virtue. This is all of the practices have expanded access in one way, shape, or form. 
<clears throat> they, they are all doing actual care management. They've integrated care managers and are actually doing it. Every primary care practice risk stratified care management so that they're actually picking out patients who have higher needs and connecting them to care managers to address those needs. That's a tremendous success. In terms of the objective measures, we're already reduced the avoidable admissions to the hospital and emergency departments by about 20%, even in the first year for the enrolled practices. 20% yeah, reduction. It's just, just dramatic. Because, you know, this is just paying attention to those people who have the greatest needs and identifying those who are likely to go to the emergency department or the hospital. We've given the practices a tool that was developed using artificial intelligence and machine learning that integrates not only claims data, but demographic data, pharmacy sure. data, social determinant data, other kinds of things. And it continually refines the ability to identify those individuals for every practice who are likely to have an avoidable event going to the hospital, the emergency department in the next 30 or 60 days. And it's uncanny how accurate it is. It will predict if you take the top 10% of the patients in this risk stratification, sure. which for a practice might be 15 or 20 people, it predicts 50% of the avoidable admissions. By avoidable, I mean somebody who, except for an immunization or an antibiotic, or except for a careful look at their at their medication list to make sure they don't have I'm not on two anticoagulants sure. or or for you know for someone who has um, chronic lung disease who hasn't been into the office for a year except for for you know things that can be prevented preventing a an exacerbation of COPD or a pneumonia or or diabetic out of control going to the hospital emergency department and DK and diabetic ketoacidosis or some other complication it's able to predict those individuals who, unless they're seen in the in the office, would have those admissions. And it really focuses the attention of the care team and makes it much more efficient. But that's just one tool. More than that, it's you know yeah. the, the successes are are being able to reduce avoidable utilization and and by by so doing, really helping reduce morbidity and mortality, but also the overall cost for healthcare. That is incredible. Yeah. So how do doctors access that predictive algorithm or the or the output of that algorithm? That's so cool. They once a month it's updated. It's on their dashboard. It's in a simple format. And Tammy and others go out to the practice and say, here's what you do. And it simply lists in order of of probability the right. top one percent for that practice, top five percent, the top ten percent of people who are likely to have avoidable admissions. And it also gives within that what's how, how likely they are. So some people are like 90% likely you are absolutely going to have an avoidable admission. Others are 10%. But t- even 10% is like 30 times what the average person is to have an avoidable admission. So and, ten, then, it, it, and then yeah. better than that, the the within that same piece of information, they can drill down easily and say, what are the reasons why this person is at high risk? Is it because oh, of wow. a pharmacy issue? Is it because of um, they just got out of the nursing home? You know, whatever those reasons are. This is incredible. You're, this is inc- I'm, I'm, my mind is blown. Go ahead, Amy. Okay. I actually am kind of interested in one little aspect of what you just said. First of all, again, mind blown too. But um, where is the data coming from with regards to the pharmacy stuff? Where is the data coming from with regarding social determinants of health? Because I know personally the EMRs that I have used do not collect in a 
bi-directional fashion any sort of information about, and we're not transmitting anywhere, these social determinants of health. So how does Big Brother know this? <laughs> so so they're, they are, they are, so this, the state has access to, um, to databases. So we have all of the Medicare claims. Okay, Medicare claims, yeah, and, got it. And, and including Part D claims. Oh, Part D claims, got so, it. Okay, and, and we all And we also have access to public use files that Things like, you know, what area deprivation index, what the crime rates are for certain areas, what air quality is, okay, where so it's not nutritional sources of food are. It's not patient specific. It may be just sort of like where you are on a dot on a map as determines some of your SDH stuff. For right now. So yes. we, ah. and one of the reasons that we, one of the reasons that we, but we do also have address data for beneficiaries. Yep. And what we're working on is a third iteration of this and will come out sometime late this year, early next year, is the address specific, which will then give us more social determinant ability so that we can then say, you know, what is the, what is, you know, from this address, this, this individual at this address, how many bus stops are they away from their primary care office? Um, or how many bus stops are they from, the, you know, a nutritional source of food? Mind is now completely <sighs> blown. This is what technology is supposed to do. Right. I, this it's, is and amazing. it can do it. No, FedEx can get something to the middle of, you know, sub-Saharan Africa yeah. overnight, but we can't get a lab from the ER down to the, you know, so, from, yeah. you know. And the really cool thing is there's some things that we think are important we don't know, there's a, but we'll be able to really carefully look at it in a, in a scientific right. way, which of those things are really important. So it may be how many trees you have on your street. That's a that is an important social determinant of your healthcare mm-hmm. outcome. Some people have said that you know that right. it may be it may be the you know the last time your street was repaired. I'm just saying these are just sure. hypotheticals, but we'll have the ability to look at With information like that. Significant multivariate analysis what, will reveal all it, it, exactly. <laughs> so the the power of being able to use these algorithms with machine learning and artificial intelligence or neural networks or other kinds of things gives you insights into not only what those risks are, but also what, what, how those risks impact healthcare utilization and spending. Yeah. Right. Any other successes that you could highlight? Yeah. So we've, we've established a program where practices can go right, again, right from this dashboard. Um, once they've identified an individual has a social need, and do a direct referral to community-based organizations or places like the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. So I'll give you, for instance, for, for the community-based organizations, we work with Meals on Wheels. So if a practice identifies an individual has food insecurity or is at homebound with food insecurity, they can do a direct referral to Meals on Wheels. What does that mean, direct referral? So it goes electronically. They, they, they send an electronic referral, which has... The, from their EMR the da- or from that their, portal? From Chris. From Chris. Oh, from, from Chris. Chris but, it, but it extracts the data from their EMR in terms of the demographics. They, they can, specific, through a drop-down, say, here's, here's who we want to send it to, Meals on Wheels or right. you know, Catholic Charities who, or whosoever. They can indicate what the reason for the referral is on the same electronic form and, and acknowledge that the patient's given consent. That and consent right. is really important. It goes electronically in kind of a, a secure email to the to the community based organizations. They pick that up. They acknowledge that they've yes, we've got this. They send the information back. We got it. We're taking on this this challenge. But in the case of Meals on Wheels, they send a volunteer out five days a week, deliver food. But they also make observations at the patient's touch point. home. It's a unique touch point. Yeah, touch point. And they could say, you know, not only do they we deliver the food, but we notice that they they don't have medicine 
where they have, you know, a decubitus ulcer or they have something else, and they give that information back to the care team. How? By electronically. They're, they're, they're connected. This is a bi-directional referral wow. system. So I did not know CRISP could do this. Yeah. Well, we just developed that this year. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, is the Maryland Primary Care Program portal where you can get the, the those algorithmic predictions? D- different portal. That's di- separate from CRISP. But no, it's, the ordering... It's, on, it's, it, on, it's on the CRISP portal, yes. Oh, it's on the CRISP portal. Yeah. It's part of the ULP now. That, yes. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay, so it's part of CRISP, and wow. in that same ULP. portal, you can order these... Right. Additional services. Yeah. That is incredible. But not, but does every provider who has access to CRISP have access to all of that? So the answer is no. It's you get right. unique right. access based on sort of whether or not you've you've been sort of approved and trained to do the direct referrals. Right. And if you are a user that has certain permissions, you then have access to um, patient level utilization data. Additionally. Yeah, so everybody will get the patient level utilization data who's in the program. Yeah. Uh, the, but your point is well taken that that for the the this bidirectional referral system is really in its infancy. So we have areas around the state where all of the providers have access to it, but it's not every area in the state. And the, really, the limiting factor is getting community based organizations who can serve those practices. So right. many community based organizations are wonderful, but they have limited capacity, both in terms of their their business structure to take on new clients, or also in terms of their ability to work with technology. So we're, you know, we're identifying the larger ones like Meals on Wheels or Catholic Charities or, or the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. So housing and community development is a good case. Now that can be statewide. That will roll out here in March, where all the practices can say, I've identified someone in the practice who needs grab rails or a ramp for their house or mold remediation for asthma and do a direct referral and wow. and the department of housing communication housing and community development will take will manage that problem and they'll bidirectionally say yes we've got it well wow. there's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities out there for sure. somebody once once these you know once some of these I guess referrals start really flowing. I mean, yeah. there could be a huge influx. What is that called? Sort of the, you know, out of the woodwork kind of things mm-hmm. where people who've been sort of craving or needing or desiring or just, be, you know, just sort of from a functional it's perspective and pe- unable to pent access. Pent-up demand. Pent-up demand, indeed. Yeah. So if you're wow. a community-based organization that provides some sort of services and you want to join this program so that you can receive these orders, how how should one reach out? Great question. Yeah. So I think they would reach out now to to us at the at the program management office because we're we're actively recruiting organizations that that have capacity and interest and and they've been they've been showing up there there's a there's a broader construct here and that is is that we really want to be able to make this a more mature system knowing that that community-based organizations are are already identified broadly by another system that exists in the state called the 211 system. So do you know about 211? No. no. Yeah. So 211 has been around for a long time. It's something that supported... <laughs> supported I love it. We love it when yeah. people are like, this has been around for 40 years and it, no one knows about been. it yeah. except for yeah. like the five, yeah. five other so, people. So and it's supported, supported both by the uh, Maryland Department of Health and by a number of other charitable organizations. United Way is a big supporter of 211. Okay. And so they are they are located across the state in, 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 I think, four different catchment areas. 
But anyone can call 211 and say, I have a problem. The number, they, they can call 211 punch one if you have a substance use problem and you'll go to our crisis center for the for substance use. But if you don't punch one, you can say, I have a problem with housing, I have a problem with depression, I have a problem with something else. And they they will give that individual information about resources within their community. So they they curate in every county the resources that are available. Where am I? I, I thought I'm in... Am I in Norway? <laughs> this is well, America? No, what? Norway, they actually told them about 2-1-1. There was like infomercials that told yeah. them to call 2 yeah. I mean, this is sort of like... Yeah. I mean, does it does it sort of I, shock you a little I bit? I went just, to no, bed and I, woke I need, up in, in, in I need to Northern ask Europe. Dr. Haft a question. <laughs> Dr. Haft, does it amaze you that you have two ER doctors here mm. who have practiced in the state of Maryland yeah. for a really long yeah. time that have never heard of 211? No, no I'm not surprising. We do a lot of things that, you know, are just below most people's <laughs> okay, radar screen. Okay, so good. We've not, so, we've not <clears throat> you know, yeah. gone below your expectations. And, and so, but anyway, back to the, yeah. the notion is yeah. that, in, is that we, you know, using, using the resources that 211 already has to curate right. local resources yeah. and then connect it in a, in a registry electronically with this output from right. from practices and then be able to to use a sophisticated system that would say that would ping each community based right. organization say do you have do you have availability now Till you get to one that does have availability. So wait, that's the. So it, it makes me reflect a little bit that we we have in the state of Maryland, and I do want to sort of look a little outside the state of Maryland in just a second. But in the state of Maryland, we have a panoply, a mosaic of all of these amazing community services that mm-hmm. are, you know, variably accessed depending upon if they're in your Rolodex or not, right. essentially. And so it sounds like. Part of the Maryland PCP program is to give everyone more access to a broader Rolodex, depending upon their geographical location and and that type of thing. Because just reflecting a little bit on on the utilization of the Meals on Wheels program, it, it's great because I don't have to, when you send off a referral, you don't have to say, you know, oh, do I want to go to the Prince George's one that's in Largo or the this mm-hmm. one or the? It just it it's like sort of automatic. You don't have to do any extra research. It just kind of like makes it all happen for you, which is kind of nice. And so that if there was this idea of an aggregation by county of of great social resources, that that would sort of be the penultimate thing. Because as Tammy and I have actually noted as in the past year. It's really nice to identify patients who have X, Y, and Z problem. But if there's no, there's no resource out there for that problem, the patient is still in the same boat as they were prior to their, you know, identification. It's I frustrating guess. for the patient and for the provider. It is that I would say is probably has has the element of being one of the more frustrating things. Yeah. And when you and, and you, when you're sufficiently frustrated, you stop doing something. Correct. And that, I think that's what we're trying to. That's what we are overcoming. Yeah. That. Frustration that why why should I ask these questions if there's nothing I can do Correct. about it? Correct. Or what I have to do about it now causes yeah, me great. such N- such great right. other I've got work a homebound patient who's addicted yeah. to narcotics. Yeah. I'm not gonna be able to effectively necessarily find the resources for that person. You know, I mean there you know, I think we've all we've we've hit on some of these right. types of patients' right. situations. Yeah. Interesting. Is so, there, some of them will still be very challenging. But oh, for yeah, the, yeah. It's but not for the, gonna but be. there's there there's so many Things that I would consider low-hanging fruit in terms of transportation, in terms of nutrition, in terms of housing supports that, that we that we that we're fairly certain 
are really important in terms of yeah. health outcomes and probably also important in terms of health care costs that we just focus on those to begin with. I think we'll, right. we'll, be, we'll right. be doing quite well. Is there a web version of 211 or do you have to use a phone to access? There is a, there is a web version of it also. Cool. Can I ask a really interesting question? Because we're coming at a lot of this discussion um, from a provider perspective, which is how does a provider know what resources are going to be available to them through the Maryland PCP program? But the question that I would say is this. How much should patients know? They should know if their provider is in this Maryland PCP program right. because obviously there's a real upside to that patient. Suddenly their provider is part of a broader network of you know, connectedness and incentivization to improve care. I mean, I would assume that this could be like a good housekeeping seal of approval for certain types of providers. And if I'm also like a care manager in a hospital or a discharge planner, I mean, all of these types of things sort of, you would think to yourself, wow, this is something that should be a a good label for a provider to have. How does that how do you think that could get communicated back to patients so that they could actually put a little bit of pressure to get that last third of primary care practices on board? Or do you think those last third will just dwindle away? Or? No, 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 no. I don't think they'll dwindle away. And, and, and But I think your point is extremely well taken and very important is that so often we leave the patients out of the equation. Yeah. And they're they're in the dark. You know, I think back to all the work that was done by the National Commission on Quality Assurance with the patient-centered medical home programs with, with level one, two, and three, and, and how hard it was to go through all of those processes. But I don't think that there's a hundred people in the country who are consumers who say, I understand what that NCQA level recognition is about, and that's why I went to that practice. Right. So the, even though they may have brought out, they may have changed their programs have been so much better than they were before. So we we require that practices send out a, a letter and also post something in their offices mm-hmm. to so that their patients can see that they're part of the program. And and also in that say the patients that you, should you choose to opt out of data sharing you can, but also to give a little snippet about the program. I think that's a that's a minimal minimally viable way to to communicate. And I don't have any real belief that that makes a difference to to the vast majority of patients. So we still have a lot of work to do to communicate what patients should expect in general from their primary care visits. So they should expect certain things. And we want to communicate that, that here's the expectation. And also communicate that practices that are in the program you can expect that they will deliver on these expectations, whether that you know whether it's expanded access or whether it's being able to have a conversation about you, with you specifically about what your healthcare needs are, not what I want to give to you, but what you want to have in needs, or that you should expect that that there's going to be care management for your needs that exceed the ability to be what can be cared for in the setting of an office visit, et cetera, et cetera, whatever those things are. That we need to communicate that in a better and a more comprehensive way and repetitively to patients so they understand this is what I, sh- you know, what I should expect. I, we're paying a lot for health care. You know, if you, if you go to Neiman Marcus, you're going to expect that you're going to get good service and you're going to get high-quality stuff. You know, we're paying Neiman Marcus prices for health care. We should expect and the patient should expect that 
That's the kind of service they're getting every time. They shouldn't expect to be sitting in the waiting room for two hours. They shouldn't expect that the people that see them look at their look at them and say, I've never seen you before. I don't know anything about you. Can you tell me why you're here? And I only have two minutes to see you. So make it fast. They should really expect something better. And that's what good is. We have to set that expectation. And I think our practices are armed, resourced to be able to meet those expectations. But it's really about if we're going to make a big difference, we have to have patients also, you know, say, this is what I expect. We're paying Neiman Marcus prices, but getting Ross or Marshall's <laughs> quality. <laughs> We're getting Walmart quality. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, do you have any? I, I actually would like to follow up on a couple of questions. Go ahead. And okay. I'll go after you. So yeah. I kind of would like to go a little bit back to the total cost of care concept mm-hmm. in the state of Maryland. The total cost of care concept is, are, are physicians being looked at as cash registers? Or are hospitals being looked at as cash registers? And who is currently being evaluated for their total cost of care? So the, the contract calls for um, Part A and Part B. So Part A is hospital spending. Part yeah. B is all non-hospital. And, and primary care is a small part of that. But, yep. but primary care spending plus all other yep. Medicare fee-for-service spending to be lumped together. And then over the next, over the... Not the part next, D, not, not, par, not, not part D, D not just pharmacy. A and B. Okay, part, got it. Part A and B. Our listeners are very attuned yeah. to that. Yeah. We've had a whole yeah. and not And not part C, not Medicare yeah. Advantage. We also, yep. Um, that they be lumped together and that the state overall reduce the run rate for part A and part B together by $300 million less than what it was in the base year of 2013 when we started all this stuff. So what, in terms of what the contributions are, is that between the investments that are made in primary care and the Part A expenses um, and Part B expenses, we have to wind up $300 million less per year on our annual run rate level by 2023. That's, can that's can you really give me the, a, What is that in terms of percentage points? So we spent, so in terms of overall spend, the healthcare spend, total healthcare spend yeah. in the state is around $43 billion a oh, year. So this is the a total, very teeny the amount. The total hospital spend is $17 billion. The total primary care spend is it's, it's 5% of the total spend. It yeah. winds up being around yeah. $2.1 billion a year in primary care. So what we're targeting is a relatively small yeah. percentage reduction. So if you looked at hospital spend, so it's not this, this is $300 million out of the Medicare portion of the hospital spend. So $17 billion. I think Medicare is, what, 40% of the, something like that of the hospital income. So it still winds up being about a, maybe a 1% reduction. Well, but it, I think that's underplaying what this really is, which is in in most areas in the country, healthcare costs are going up it's by going, five, six, seven, eight percent a year. You've got that's right. It. So that's, that's the it. so this is actually relative to that. This is like an eight percent delta compared to what's happening in most of America, right? So that's what's really amazing about it. So let me recap kind of how I understand total cost of care. The state basically said, listen. We want to spend less than what we did in whatever the baseline year it was. You said 2013, 2013. right? So they said, okay, we're going to spend $300 million less, and now we need to apportion that money to each health system. And I actually didn't know that that Part B was involved as well. I thought it was just health systems. 
And they basically went to the health systems and said, listen, we're going to give you 1% less than the 2013 amount, okay? So that's a net... the hospitals. Yeah, the, the hospitals. The hospitals. Well, because I'm, I'm thinking more, I guess, GBR models, but I, so I'm, I'm a little unclear how different TCOC is from GBR, but the basic concept was we're going to pay you a little bit less than, than the 2013 baseline or whatever the baseline was in GBR, but we're going to guarantee it for you. And you, you will get that money as long as you continue to provide all the services to the same population, roughly the same population as you were before. That was roughly the deal, right? And if you spend, can and I, if you can, can I, provide, can I, and if you can provide services for less than that amount, then you get to keep that delta. That's it, right? Okay, so let me make sure. I'm, I'm gonna now. I'm the guy yeah. who knows nothing. So you're saying that the total cost of care said, okay, here's what we had in 2013, and we're gonna take that amount, and we're gonna spend 300 million dollars less per year or over per year, yeah, per yeah, year, yeah. And you sort of like look at each individual hospital. So yep. we're like not at health system. I think sorry, sorry, confusing. sorry, sorry. So yeah. you look at each different hospital and say each year, all of you together, all of you hospitals all together have to spend $300 million less than you spent okay. the year before. So, so by 2020, there's a ramp up for this. Okay. So and the easier way to look at this is we're saying that we're going to make investments in care management fees that will go to primary care. Let's say that's a hundred million dollars a year, just as, as okay. a, as a Yep. Pick, a, pick a number. It's, it could okay. be a little less, could be a little more. And what we're and what we want to do is by 2023 have a system that even with that increase on the of hundred million dollars added to the pot, we'll still have a three hundred million dollar reduction in total Part A and Part B costs. So most of that has to obviously come out of the hospitals. So the Part A piece. So the the three hundred million dollars plus the hundred million dollars will come out of the Hospital side. So, what does that really? What does that look like? We so one of the things that we we know for sure is that there's about 1.6 billion dollars a year in avoidable hospital and ED visit annually. Yeah. So that looks like taking in, one, in some ways taking 25 percent of that out by doing more in the ambulatory setting, but that's actually hard work to do. Uh, but I think it's 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 achievable, but it's it's hard work to do. It also looks like hospitals in general have had smaller and smaller footprints and less utilization over the over the last few years as more is shifting anyway into the ambulatory setting. So some hospitals are closing, some are turning into uh, um, kind of partial hospitals. And, uh, and so, so there's a tide that's moving in that direction. And the tide has actually already moved pretty far right. in that direction when we looked at the numbers – for the first year of that three hundred million dollars savings, we've got, I would say, eighty to eighty-five percent of the way there already in the first year, on the run rate. So I think that you know we're 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 in a time where there's alignment. So hospitals have an intention to get smaller, and then they, as you right. said, they want to keep that difference as they get smaller between, you know, what they they keep their global budgets, right. but be able to have more to do other things to enhance other services. Yeah. So the global budget is just a another, yet another part of the total cost of care it's part concept. Of it. yeah, it's not could, it is not the total cost of care. It no. is just part of It is the that is yeah. that is so the That's parts, the hospital part A part yeah. is global budget is the, and you can go read these contracts online. I've read yeah. some of the hospital GBR contracts and it's it's really interesting. It's obviously a lot more complicated than what we're talking yeah. it would take I think a because it's really tricky. Like, there, it's not a total guarantee that they're going to get that full amount. Because 
if they like if there are readmissions that were inappropriate they actually lose oh, money lose so money yeah so there there's there's a there's a lot of moving levers or moving pieces uh to this model which we should get to into yeah. on a, at a different time yeah, but, yeah. And those are good if you if you have insomnia <laughs> yes very good yes very good to review that right before you go to bed yes um yeah there there are multiple it's, and it's it, as you said it's very on the hospital side very complicated with things like MPA and MPA adjustments, efficiency right. adjustments, and and a whole host of really innovative things that hospitals are doing to work with community partners. So it gets really complicated on that side, but um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. At a, at so a, if I was a community partner, a mm-hmm. nonprofit, well, I guess you call it a tax-exempt organization, or even a, a like a, a sort of a, a for-profit organization, is this a good time to start approaching hospitals or health system saying, hey, listen, I've got a great idea. If you discharge your patients to me, I will do X, Y, and Z and reduce cost of care. Yeah, it's a great time to do that. We've, we've been given permission to, with, with certain waivers about fraud and abuse and, and urine and other things, yeah. and, and, but within certain guardrails to do exactly those kinds of things that hospitals can do with, with non-hospital partners. And there's yeah. a process for doing that through the it's called the State Innovation Group that okay. we've established that, uh-huh. that welcomes suggestions, and they vet those suggestions. Some of them have already led to waivers that will allow the state to do things that can't be done elsewhere. One of the, an, an early, small example, but an early example of that was allowing nurse practitioners to write for home health orders. They previously were not permitted to do that. They needed to go through a process. And that's a national thing now. Yeah, but, as of 2020. Yeah. yeah. So we, but we got the, we got in in 2019. Oh, I like it. So Maryland. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. we're applied for things like to do, to do, to do virtual diabetes prevention program payments within this within the state. So Medicaid is doing that as a pilot. We applied to Medicare to do that as a, as a as a program here, knowing that we have one of the things we want to address is preventing right. diabetes. And right. It's hard to do that. So in- Maryland has its own innovation program outside of CMMI. Absolutely. So um, fascinating. Yeah. Can I, I? I was going to take it one step, unless you have another. Question. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious with the, with the, the the Maryland primary care program from both from both Dr. Haft and Tammy. What are providers not doing well or what do you wish they understood better or did better you know where's the gap still oh you put me on the spot you know i i I think for us we're not here to change you know the actual clinical care of of what providers are doing we at the as coaches are here to help with being able to think outside of the box with what can we do to be able to give you some of that time back for you to, to take care of your patients and for you to focus on clinical care. So it could be, you know, sometimes some of the coaches see there's certain like inefficiencies with administrative work or why are you downloading the spreadsheet and doing this certain way when you could be using your EHR for something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways that, you know, practice coaches can assist the entire practice that really shifts kind of the provider's initial maybe resistance to work with us. And I think, and, and this reminds me to back to the, the days when I was doing some outreach for our care management program that I was in in a former life. We would do a lot of bedside engagement with patients who were high utilizers of the hospital, coming in and out of the hospital. 
And the one of the first visits I had I was with another community health worker. And the patient was like, what's your angle? Like, why are you doing this? This is a free program. I don't understand why you want to do this. And so I think one thing is just educating on why we want to do this. And ultimately, we think that patient care is, you know, very, very important. And we want to be able to uh, protect and preserve that for the practices in the state and be able to provide high quality and really meaningful, you know, services to our patients. So once I think providers and, and, and physicians and the staff understand that, I think they're very much more open to us coming in. I honestly, I just want to just, just follow up with the, the concept of learned helplessness. I think that over the years, right, <laughs> yeah. I, right, am I, I yeah. mean, anybody who's been out there, you, anybody, we've all four of us sitting yeah. here been out there taking care of people, and you become so used to just being that little, that little mouse or that little rat just swimming around being like, I'm definitely going to drown or maybe not, you know, just you get used to not having the resources. So you, you actually blank out certain things that you wish you could have done because you know, they don't exist. And I think part of, part of uh, what I think the MDPCP program might be trying to do is disentangle some of that learned helplessness to some degree. And we moved to cheese. Thank you for moving the cheese. I do appreciate that. And then I know that we need to wrap it up, but is the Maryland primary care program like other programs in other states? My understanding is there is this thing called the CPC Plus program that is similar to the Maryland primary care plus program. The the advanced primary care pieces that we talked about, those five advanced Mm -hmm. primary care Mm -hmm. pieces were were built on 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 that infrastructure. Mm. But it's different in so many ways, so many ways from CPC and CPC plus. But I would say we what we did was take a careful look at where the strengths were and where the where the weaknesses were in, yeah. in CPC and CPC plus and and built on them. Got it. Particularly on the resource side. Got it. And we'll continue to do that. So CPC and CPC plus now will be relegated to the annals of CMMI history. I think they're <laughs> fading out and Oh really? And, and the, yes, I think they this is the last year, two years for for CPC Plus, and 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 they're moving forward with new programs called Primary Care First, which are downside risk programs for primary care. Of course, we'll see how how much adoption. And not and not how, in the state of Maryland. We not in the state. Not of in the state Maryland. of Maryland. Elsewhere, though, yeah. 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 So we'll see, and that's a that's a new direction yep. um, to go in. But we're still we're the probably the last place, and we'll be different in the way we test making these resource investments in primary care together with learning systems and and other supports to see if if that changes the system. So Maryland, I hear this from many places. Oh, you're from Maryland and you're special, so that's why you can do these things. But the fundamentals that we're doing are things that are are both scalable uh, and replicable in other places. So you think other states might... It, with you know, with um, a small amount of political will, <laughs> I think that these these same things, if they're successful, can be again scaled and replicable anywhere. And there are other states that are doing similar things, but in, in using different kind of political levers. They're using affordability levers. They're using the insurance administration. Governor Baker in uh, Massachusetts, I think, spoke in support of a broad bill. That looks very much like what we're doing here in Maryland. For the Massachusetts legislature, there was a 
similar bill last year that was enacted in Colorado. We know we have colleagues in Delaware who are doing very similar kinds of things in Oregon and Vermont. So, so I think in, in, in slightly different ways, but the same theme, let's, let's build strong primary care infrastructure and let's restrain the high-end spending. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. First off, I think it's time to wrap up, but Dr. Half, thank you so much for coming. This was incredibly informative. As as a participant in the program last year, I learned so much. And Alex, who knows nothing about it, (laughs) learned even more than I did. And um, we are so honored to have you in the studio today. And thank you for all the great work on behalf of all the patients and the providers in the state. Really it's, benefited from this. I can tell you it's truly a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 